Hello and welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. You're joined as always by Melbourne journalist Michelle Andrews, that would be me, and Zara McDonald, that would be you. Hello. Hello. Coming up on today's show, how do we feel about Taylor Swift performing at the Melbourne Cup? Plus, why the name Caroline Calloway just won't go away, and the essay about performative friendships that struck a chord with you and I, Zara. Yes. The host of this podcast. <laughs> Is there another question coming? I think there was going to be a question and then I got to the end of it and was like, no, that's it. Do you know what question you meant to ask? Uh, how was your week? There we go. Just like a light bulb in our eyes. <laughs> <laughs> there was meant to be a question. My week was good. I have spent all weekend moving house. Yes. You are now living with two of your friends. Yeah. Two of my best friends. And I kind of just naively thought that I would be able to do it in like three hours. No. I'm not sure what part of me thought that. I, I tell you what, you can do moving out in three hours if you get professional removalists, but you did not do that. You just took your tiny little car back and forth. And again am, and again and again. And I am not a professional movalist or removalist. Removalist? Did you say movalist? Mm-hmm. Definitely removalist. Definitely wrong. <laughs> Second to that, what would I recommend this week? Oh, I posted on our Instagram stories and in our Facebook group this week a really beautiful uh, video produced by Kiss from Will and Woody's radio station. Will and Woody are the afternoon drive presenters across the country. And they did this searing piece with the two of them sitting on the couch talking about Will's depression in the wake of Are You OK Day this week. And it was genuinely one of the best pieces of content I've seen produced this week on mental health, seeing two men who are very well known for being kind of jokey larrikins and not being particularly serious. Well, Will was wearing a VB cap when they spoke about this, which is so so poignant. So, so poignant. And they were just in tears, like in tears talking about this and not trying to fight those tears. They were more than happy to have like very candid, free flowing tears talking about the impact of Will's mental health not just on him but on their friendship on their working relationship I just thought it wasn't just a tokenistic conversation about mental health and in this kind of week it was a really important and helpful one too a conversation you and I had a bit this week around are you okay day and the content that came out for mental health awareness was that lots of men said a lot about mental health which I love of course we need more men involved in the conversation because so many men lose their lives to suicide every year but so many of the conversations that happened man to man didn't actually use the word depression there's a real tendency on those blokey channels and blokey shows to refer to depression as it and not use the word and while I think any kind of conversation is a step in the right direction I think what Will and Woody did so brilliantly in that conversation in particular was use the word if there's no stigma and there's no shame and of course there's not I've been open about my own battle with mental illness in the past on this podcast use the word if we're going to use the word asthma we're going to use the word cancer Cancer, heart attack use the word depression the more we call it it the more we kind of do cover it again and again in this sense of shame and secrecy and there should be no secrecy around it well I do think we need to label it in order to see it Mm. and I think they did that really beautifully so I'll pop that in our show notes you can also find that in our Facebook group too but there are a few things I would recommend more from this week absolutely how was your recommendation it was really really good my football team, Richmond Football Club, is going to be in a preliminary oh final my God, we're this back weekend. Here. I know. It, okay, so this is three years in a row now that we've made the preliminary final. We made, we won the grand final in 2017. Stop rolling your eyes, Zara. This is actually really important to me. And I can tell you right now, our entire work week is going to be dominated by my anxiety over Richmond potentially losing this preliminary final. At that point, I just tune out then, right? <sighs> anyway. Yeah, what do you ever talk about? You've got a boyfriend who's obsessed with football. Everyone around me is obsessed with football. My siblings are obsessed with football. 
football. Uh, this is actually a very hard time of year for me. I have to say, because I love September. The sun is shining. The bees are out. <laughs> and we know how much I love and care about bees. I what love, a hoot for the bees. That I must love be their like fourth mention. <laughs> we are single-handedly saving the fucking bees on this podcast. Four weeks ago, you didn't even know that saving the bees was important. I know, right? Back to football. Anyway, I feel like... It's a beautiful time of year and I'm just locked out of some part of it that everybody loves. What do you not get about it? How do you not get swept up in the excitement? I don't know because I actually desperately wish I could. Like I wish I could sit down and watch a game and get really worked up and very passionate. But I sit there and then I end up on my phone because I'm bored shitless. What I would recommend to you if I was to be your football psychologist would be get into the emotion behind sport. Look at how much it means to – stop fucking rolling your eyes. (laughs) Look at the fans' faces. Look at everyone in the crowd. To to appeal to me by asking me to go to the nth degree and appeal to the emotion, you needed to find some middle ground just then. You needed to say – But I'm not going to appeal to you on the tactics because you don't know any of the rules. No, I think you needed to – and little baby steps. But the narrative of sport is what – can get you in. Yeah. You're a writer. You're in content. The narrative oh, of the game and knowing maybe what I need to do is get you like a bit of a synopsis on each team that's going to be in the grand final about the injuries and the heartbreak and the triumph over the season and then you'll be invested in the narrative as much as I am. Regardless, I'm going to be anxious this weekend because my team, Richmond, is playing Geelong and I desperately want to win because if we miss out on the grand final again this year for the second year in a row... It'll be pretty gloomy. I'm not going to lie. You're going to have it. You're going to struggle with it because you'll have to spend the most amount of time with me and I'll be pretty down. Yeah, I just won't indulge either, (sighs) which is harsh of me. But unless you train me up to be a football fan, I'm going to struggle. Any recommendations from this week, Michelle? Yes. Now I'm going to break my rule, which I stuck by last week, which was don't re-recommend something (gasps) you've already recommended in the (laughs) newsletter. However, I stick by this one because I recommended it to you in general conversation during the week and you did tell me it was a great recommendation. I think everyone should go listen to Unravel Snowball. It is an ABC podcast. It is a true crime podcast, which is very different for me. But what makes this true crime podcast different is that it is not gory. It is not gross. There is no dead bodies. There is just one egomaniac at the centre who defrauds people for fun. Yeah, it was really interesting. So we interviewed Bridget Hustwaite last week for an in-conversation that will be running in the next few weeks. And she was telling us, this was her recommendation at the start of the episode. She said her boss, Ollie Wards from Triple J, had produced this story on behalf of his family. And so she said to us, you've got to listen to it. You've got to listen to it. And we said to her, we're not into true crime. I think the last time I listened to a podcast series or a podcast narrative was S-Town by Brian oh Reed. My, that's which, not even crime. It was ages ago. I have not listened to this stuff. Wow. And the only true crime series I listened to probably was Serial. Did you listen to The Teacher's Pet? No, I listened to the first four episodes and really struggled. See, The Teacher's Pet and Who the Hell is Hamish, if you enjoyed those two podcasts, which I definitely did, Unravel Snowball is absolutely for you. But I do love this as well. Mm. So I think there is something in it for everyone. And the score and the soundtrack behind it is kind of very funky. The jingle's a bespoke jingle by Flight Facilities. Yeah, Imagine getting Flight Facilities to make – I mean, if anyone from Flight Facilities, if either of those guys are listening to this, please make us a new shameless jingle. I keep hearing it on every television (laughs) ad under the sun. And every time I hear it – I think like our we don't have any cred anyway, but we just get progressively less cool the more that um, wasn't it Miller's okay so Miller's ha- uses our <laughs> we haven't actually addressed this on the podcast yet, but the people that have got the same jingle as us aren't the world's coolest brands, and I'm so so sorry to these brands. We're never going to get them on the show, but it's like, do I name them? Yeah, Miller's, like- McDonald's, Subway. <laughs> 
was a weird like a craft brand that was using our jingle and every time someone sends it to us they're like is this yours? Like, why is this brand using it? And I just can't respond because can't, it's so embarrassing. I can't be bothered explaining that we all just bought the same jingle. Anywho, shall we actually get into the show, Michelle? Yeah, if anyone wants to send us a new show jingle, please do. We're <laughs> desperate. I can't, we can't have the same jingle as a brand that sells like velour tracksuits. Or um, McFlurries. Like, oh. this jingle was used to sell McFlurries. Nothing or- against McFlurries, but something against velour tracksuits Unpo- for sure. Unpopular opinion. Sometimes McFlurries can get a bit sickly. Anywho, <laughs> Let's start with Taylor Swift in the Melbourne Cup. Taylor Swift was announced, a huge coup for the VRC, as a p- performer at the Melbourne Cup this year for a paycheck that people are saying is what, around a million? Yeah, around a million. Some reports said 1.5. The VRC came out and said it's not over a million. So it's around that figure. However, they wouldn't come out and give us an actual sum. I was going to say it's unlike a news story to A, not be able to agree on what the rumoured pay packet is mm-hmm. and B, for the people employing her to refuse to comment on how much it costs absolutely we will say this is probably a million dollars for two songs a maximum of 10 minutes on stage that taylor swift has to do for this gig so she'll be flying in and flying out and cashing a one million dollar check for it now like before we even get into the actual debate around whether or not taylor swift should be performing at the melbourne cup how is it that the vrc gets so many a-listers involved i mean the afl can't secure any a-list talent to perform on their grand final day and yet the VRC get Taylor Swift and last year was Sam Smith. But the Cup Carnival is a much cooler social event on the calendar than going to the AFL grand final. Is it? I think so. Yeah, because think about it in a social standing sense and also it's eyeballs, right? The the Melbourne Cup is watched, and I've got the stats here, by 83 million people in the United States, 160 million people in Europe and 300 Shit. million people in Asia. This year, VRC Chief Executive Neil Wilson anticipates a global reach of 750 million. Now, I know you love AFL, Dal. <laughs> that explains why we had meatloaf and <laughs> VRC get Taylor. Meatloaf gate. <laughs> I am surprised that they did manage to get her... I was equally surprised by the backlash that Taylor Swift got. Surprised? I was surprised by how prevalent this theory was that Taylor Swift shouldn't be performing at the Melbourne Cup because she owes it to her fans to stand up for animal rights or stand against horse racing in general. I wasn't surprised that there was backlash. I think the the crowd and the criticism around the Melbourne Cup is getting louder every year, for sure. But I am surprised that it came before the carnival rather than after. Um, I do think so much of the commentary I've been a little torn on, a little conflicted. I know so have you. The Coalition for the Protection of Racehorses came out and said, if Taylor Swift cares at all about other animals the way she appears to care about cats, she will cancel her show and make a strong statement that animal abuse is unacceptable. I did struggle with this a little bit. I think it was a little passive aggressive to say if she appears to care about her cats Mm. as if it's all just a performance. And I think it's pretty rough to conflate enjoying the company of a pet to being a hypocrite in this context if you've never stood for animal action activism in the past publicly i agree with that and she has never stood up for animal activism we did a google search and we changed all the different tools that you can on google search to try and find any allegiance that taylor swift has to an animal rights charity and she has never proclaimed to be vegetarian she's never proclaimed to stand by animal activism charities or anything of that sort she's stood up for things like feminism and gender equality and violence against women she has never stood up for something like this which does make it really interesting to me because 
what does Taylor Swift actually owe her fans here? And I do mean that rhetorically. What do you owe your fans when you're in the spotlight and when you have a celebrity status attached to your name? Should you be expected to stand for every social justice issue just because your fans stand for that social justice issue? And if Taylor Swift did say get approached by the VRC, get offered $1 million for 10 minutes of work. If she had said no to that, someone else would have said yes. Someone else who is an A-list celebrity would have taken that up. Sam Smith did last year. So we would have been asking her to silently refuse this massive job so that someone else could have taken it for a cause that Taylor Swift clearly doesn't feel very strongly about. Yeah, I see your point there. I don't know if it's like flawless in every context. Are you saying I'm not flawless? (laughs) No, you are flawless. You are infallible. (laughs) No, because I think if we use that argument for everything, well, like if you don't say no to this, someone else will just take it is not the way to necessarily not take a stand. Yeah, Do you know what course, I mean? Yeah, of course, but it's not something that she particularly cares about. In this clearly. context, if it's something that she's never stood up for, I don't know why she owes it to us to be then inconsistent with her public values. Like, I don't understand what she owes us. I think you can love a celebrity and not expect them to have every single value aligned with yours. You can absolutely be annoyed that she's performing. You can absolutely wish that she wasn't. But I think the the vitriol in the backlash is just very uncalled for. She does not have to mirror your values. And I think there's a lot of entitledness in assuming that every celebrity is going to align with you. That said, we did have a conversation off mic as we were prepping for this. And we said, well, what's the difference between Taylor aligning herself with the Melbourne Cup and Taylor you know, producing a song with Chris Brown. And clearly the difference here is the the hypocrisy element. Like if Taylor wrote a song with Chris Brown and performed with Chris Brown, there would be elements of hypocrisy because she has called herself a feminist. She's fought against sexual harassment allegations. There is a thread there that she should be consistent with. When it comes to animal activism, I'm just not sure we can possibly expect people to stand for everything, which I feel like we say every week on this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. What really stands out to me here is the comparison between Taylor Swift mm. performing at the Melbourne Cup and Sam. Smith performing at the Melbourne Cup last year. Animal injury at the Melbourne Cup is not a new thing. Animal death at the Melbourne Cup is not a new thing. Horses have died since 2013 regularly, quite regularly. And yet I could not find a single headline that portrayed Sam Smith negatively for taking that job at the Melbourne Cup in 2018. I would love for anyone to prove me wrong on that. I did all of the searching I could, put in all of the different tools I could and different search terms I could. I could not find a single negative headline about Sam Smith. For example, this was written in the Herald Sun in 2018. After I think five horses had died at this point, Nup to the Cup was a big deal last year as it was this year. And the headline about Sam Smith in the Herald Sun read, Sam Smith heads up Melbourne Cup Entertainment Bonanza. Now compare the angle and the vibe of that headline to this one in the Herald Sun about Taylor Swift this year. Taylor Swift faces animal activist backlash for agreeing to Melbourne Cup show. Very, very different messaging, very different tone. Or even worse, take this headline from Junkie this year. Junkie did not write a single headline that I could find about Sam Smith heading up the entertainment last year. Yet this year, their headline on Facebook was Taylor Swift to perform at Australia's annual carnival of horse torture. I don't have the answer for this. I'm not going to say that this is a sexism thing or a gendered thing. I would love to have a conversation with people about it, but I'm incredibly interested as to why a publication like Junkie wrote a headline like that about Taylor Swift when horses dying at the Melbourne Cup has been an issue now for six years and they didn't say a 
thing about Sam Smith doing it last year. No publication did. Now, while I'm talking about Sam Smith, I did see lots of comments in our Facebook group saying that you can't compare Sam Smith and Taylor Swift because Taylor Swift's celebrity and star status is apparently so much greater than Sam Smith, which I reject Zara. It's a bit of much of a muchness, to be totally honest. Yeah, in I'd, this context particularly. Yeah, I'd say Taylor Swift is probably the biggest artist in the world right now, but Sam Smith is right there with her. And I've got a metric to back this up. I couldn't think of what other stat would be relevant in 2019 because singles don't really sell. No one buys CDs anymore. You've gone for followers. No, I've gone for Spotify monthly streams. Okay. So this is what they've both been streamed in the last month. Sam Smith has had 42,257,000 streams. Taylor Swift has had 1 million more, 43,430,000 streams. They are almost identical in terms of sway and pull and power in the industry. So I think they're one and the same, really, when we're talking about them in this context. No, and I think that's a really hard, hard pill to swallow because I think nobody wants to come out and say, you know, well, it's wholly sexist, but it's pretty hard to not see elements of gender in this. Like, I will put that on the table. It is hard not to see elements of gender in this. I think you're so allowed to hate Taylor Swift's decision, like I said, but it is her decision. Like, be outspoken about this, be passionate about this, but be consistent about this like if you are going to hate her decision hate everyone that's come before her and everyone that's going to come after her the lack of consistency in this argument and in this context annoys me to no end and also sorry but does calling the melbourne cup australia's annual carnival of horse torture make any sense and is it productive for anyone in any camp when it comes to this issue does junkie do any good by talking about it in that way because i don't think Any of the statistics show that it is a carnival of horse torture. I think that kind of hyperbolic language really harks back to what we were talking about a few weeks ago with veganism and with pro-lifers, where this kind of intentionally divisive language does nothing but divide us and it does nothing but make people turn away put their headphones on and not listen to any of the debate instead of wanting to participate in it. I think Junkie have every right to use whatever headline they'd like. What I found a little harder to swallow with this is that this headline was edited for Facebook and was different on their homepage. And having worked in digital media, I think the inference you can glean from that is that you're deliberately putting a more controversial, divisive headline on Facebook, not for the purpose of public service, but for the purpose of engagement. You know that is going to get more engagement. So there are definitely more motivations at play than a public service announcement. Which is very interesting because one of my favourite pieces on Junkie over the last few years was actually a piece that looked at outrage journalism and how different publications outside of Junkie intentionally use cantankerous headlines to get engagement and they were calling out other publications for that and I would accuse Junkie, which I will say Junkie is one of my favourite publications and I think they do a great job of speaking to millennials and Gen Z. On this occasion, I think that is pretty hypocritical. Thank you, next bitch. And now it is time for the quick and dirty. As always, we bring you five stories from the rough Rough and and tumble. (laughs) Stole my line, bitch. From the news cycle, Michelle, you've collated for me. What have you got? My first story is Gwyneth Paltrow, a crucial source in Harvey Weinstein revelations. That is from The Guardian. I quite liked this story this week. I sent it to you straight away. It has come to light because Jodie Cantor and Megan Toohey, the journalists who broke the Harvey Weinstein story for the New York Times, have written a book about that period, which I really want to get my hands on and read. I think it will be so interesting. It just sucks that I'm a terrible reader at the moment. But they've written about the process of putting that story together. And one of the most interesting things to come out of that book is the fact that Gwyneth Paltrow was crucial to getting that story off the ground. So not only was she a crucial source going on the record, but she was crucial, the two journalists said, in helping them find other sources and encouraging them to keep going, which I thought 
is amazing and incredible. And I think the thing I said to you over text is it's interesting to me that Gwyneth Paltrow can be such a gritty warrior for women in this context and own a brand that sort of uh, leverages off female vulnerabilities in the wellness space to make money. Yeah, I, I've been mulling over this one for a while. First of all, I agree with you. I think it's absolutely incredible what Gwyneth Paltrow did for the Weinstein totally. story. And I think if you read into it and you go and look at this Guardian story, it will tell you about some very, very uncomfortable positions that Gwyneth Paltrow put herself in with Weinstein to make sure that the truth was out there. And I think that's commendable. Do I think what she does with group is at all relevant here? I do a little bit. I agree with you. However, I also think... Uh, Gwyneth Paltrow has pivoted recently with what Goop puts out into the world. It's not perfect by any means, but she has brought on scientific fact checkers. She has done a but little bit in the a space. Little, a little bit more because of public shaming than yeah. personal responsibility. And you could but say it's too little too late, but totally. at least it's something. And I don't think what Gwyneth Paltrow has done with Goop is unforgivable. I think it's murky and I don't think it's great, but I think what she has done with the Harvey Weinstein story here is amazing and I will definitely applaud her for that yeah and more important I have to say it's not like a huge deal for me I just think having those two ideas sitting in my brain at the same time was a little too much to handle for like a Tuesday afternoon did you see the hilarious Gwyneth Paltrow tweet that went viral this week no so this was a tweet from James Wong who it looks like he's in the science space he's tagged he's a columnist for new scientist let's just say he's a science writer (laughs) sorry James if you're listening (laughs) James wrote, reading that Gwyneth Paltrow's clean beauty regime means she starts every day with a refreshing glass of alkaline water and spritz of lemon. Then he's put in a little parentheses, which makes alkaline water no longer alkaline and highlights the magnificent level of bullshit that people will swallow from celebrities. (laughs) I did see that around. That's pretty good. The irony is Uh... so good. My second story. This surely isn't appropriate for a 7.30 time slot. Bachelor fans slam Matt Agnew and Abby Chatfield's over-the-top makeout session in the pool. That is from Daily Mail. I haven't been watching The Bachelor in the last couple of weeks, so fill me in. Why are you not watching this season? I don't know. I think it goes back to our conversation at the very start of the season where it's really hard to not see it being overly edited and overly constructed, and I don't find that entertaining. Yeah, I think once you really have your eyes open to just how much this is manufactured, it's yeah. a struggle to then sit through it. I am still sitting through it because the season <laughs> is quite dramatic and entertaining, I've got to say. I am very interested with the commentary around Abby Chatfield and the trolling, to be honest, of Abby Chatfield. The feedback that Abby Chatfield has received after going on this show feels so slut-shamey. And I will say that about women in our own group. There was a, a very interesting comment on one of the Bachelor threads that I actually deleted saying that Abby should get herself a vibrator because she's clearly so sexually active and engaged and promiscuous on the show. And I find it very interesting how we've responded to an attractive woman. Abby is beautiful by anyone's standard. An attractive woman's display of her own sexuality and pride in her own sexuality. I think a lot of women, I know I might rub a lot of people up the wrong way by this, and I'm very sorry if I do. I think a lot of women are threatened by it to see a very attractive woman own her sexuality so shamelessly. Well, I mean, Matt is clearly not saying no. Like, mm. he's clearly into it. He's clearly just as into it as she is. Mm. It's just funny that you never seem to comment on a guy who's, who's I don't want to use any dorky sayings in this context because I feel like you'll pull me up on it. Um, gagging for it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm oh, yuck. 
Oh my god, Mum, I'm so sorry. Gagging for it. I was kidding. It was a joke. I the said a tongue in cheek. Gag in a cheek. sexual sense is very um, it's disgusting. It's genuinely one of the grossest things you can say about sex. Uh, anyway, yeah, I, I just find it interesting. I'm not saying that you have to love her, but I'm saying when commentary comes about about Abby's sexuality and her harnessing of that sexual energy. Be careful. I think we need to examine where this is coming from. That's what I was just about to say. It it comes back to that thing we were talking about weeks ago. Examine your annoyance. Like, why are you annoyed at this? Examine your own response. Yeah. My third story, Demi Moore blamed herself for miscarriage of baby with Ashton Kutcher. That is page six. I have not seen this story at all. So Demi Moore has actually written an autobiography. So she's around a bit at the moment and she also did an interview with the New York Times about the biography. I find the insight into her marriage with Ashton Kutcher incredibly interesting and some of it very, very sad. She was pregnant to Ashton Kutcher's baby and miscarried at six months. What? And said that she blamed herself for that because she was drinking and that she spiraled after that, was drinking heaps, was taking prescription drugs. And then in 2011, she alleged in her book that Ashton Kutcher had an affair and that's why they split. So she was six months pregnant and was drinking yeah. alcohol and she, thinks that's the That's reason. the inference. I don't know. I mean, she doesn't go into very much depth on how much. In the articles, I haven't read the book oh yet, but in the interviews that I've read, she said that there is a lot of sadness around that time and she did drink progressively more after that miscarriage as well and it did come kind of spiral her in a way that she wasn't expecting. And then Ashton and her split. I mean, there was a huge age difference. And I think if you're grieving, I do think maturity would come into play hugely in a marriage like that when there's an age difference that big. Absolutely. What was the inference that he cheated? She alleges in her book that he cheated. And then a lot of the articles that are reporting this are linking back to original articles from that time, reports from that time, where it was like he had cheated with some like 22-year-old. I don't know. I don't know what's true. But the inference is very much that he cheated. What a sad story. Yeah, pretty sad. Especially with the miscarriage of a child as well. It's horrific. It's awful. My fourth story, Liam Hemsworth holidays in a Australia with brother Chris amid Miley Cyrus split. That is from Nine Honey. Have you read the rumours that Liam Hemsworth is dating Isabel Lucas? No, but that fucking rocks. Yeah. So Isabel Lucas, wow. if you guys don't know, <laughs> is from Home and Away and Transformers. Now, I will say she has come out and denied this and just said they're close friends. They always do, Michelle. Exactly. <laughs> well, that's in my head. I'm like, well, of course you're going to die because it's probably true. Also, forgive my, you know, close-mindedness, but when you're in your late 20s, early 30s, how often do you randomly become close friends with a person of the opposite sex out of nowhere with no history? Do you want to know the extra layer of juiciness to Absolutely. This story? <laughs> Isabel Lucas dated Chris Hemsworth for three years. Oh my god, I knew that. I knew Before that's why I Elsa. Thought, oh my god, she, he absolutely did. Yeah, she and absolutely Chris did. has said in quotes, "I think they would be good together." They Liam would. And they, how good would they be together? When I was looking at photos of them, I was like, "Fuck yeah!" Isabel Lucas has a very similar vibe to Miley it's, Cyrus. Very similar appearance. Very similar, like hippie esque, carefree. Barefoot, Sandy Byron. Beaches vibe. Byron Bay vibe, right? How good would they be together? Both actors. I mean, I loved Miley Cyrus and Liam Hemsworth, of course, but Liam Hemsworth and Isabel Lucas I'm very on board with. Very interesting, Michelle. Great story. I know. My fifth and final story for today's Quick and Dirty. Number five, Fenty drives final nail into Victoria's Secret's coffin. That is from The Cut. This is a story from you. And after reading the headline, I've decided I really don't care. So please sell it to me. Why do I care about Fenty driving the final nail into Victoria's Secret coffin? Wasn't Victoria's Secret 
already dead. Yeah, the point is not about Victoria's Secret Coffin. The point is about Fenty. So Fenty is obviously Rihanna's brand. The Fenty and Savage uh, lingerie show was showcased at New York Fashion Week this week. And I think the reason that it got such great coverage is because it worked so well as the antithesis to Victoria's Secret. And I think for so long, the defense of Victoria's Secret was how do you have a lingerie show that's not sexual and that doesn't objectify women? I think that was a lot of the defense of Victoria's Mm. Secret. And when it comes to Rihanna's Fenty show, it did reach 200 million people thanks to Amazon because it was streamed through Amazon. Wow. Huge, huge, huge. It had women of different shapes, different sizes, a, 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 an amazing array of artists. The show was quite striking and spectacular. And Rihanna said after the show to the cut, here's our bottom line. We're inclusive. We want women to feel confident no matter what size they're in. This year it was about how do we expand that? How do we make more women feel confident? And I think for me it was one of the first times I've seen photos of something. And there's not heaps of photos around because everybody had to put their phone in some sort of like hideaway locker at the start, even Anna Wintour. What? Why? I don't know. Some sort of – maybe it's probably a hype thing, Michelle. But there are – of the few photos I've seen and of the reviews I've seen – for me, it's one of the first times I've seen lingerie promoted and portrayed in a way that actually does leverage confidence of women, not the objectification of women. And leverages the female gaze, not the male gaze. Exactly. How women feel sexy, not how men want women to feel sexy. And it's commercially successful. It's financially viable. Isn't it fascinating that in 2018, the way to get publicity was to have everyone put things up on their Instagram stories. Now we've done a complete 180 flip and we don't want anyone to have their phones out because that's what creates hype. The phones being out in the Instagram stories is the norm now and we don't want that anymore. It's so funny when I was scrolling through this cut story, I was desperate to see more photos. Like I was looking at the photos and it's quite a dark and moody show. So I was really zooming in on the photos trying to see more. And I think that's what they're trying to capture. I mean, maybe we're projecting, but if they are trying to capture it, well fucking done to Fenty. I just really love that. I mean, it's it's equal parts heartening and disheartening that it's taken this long for people to realize that inclusivity and diversity is commercially viable but it's heartening that it's happening now and that Rihanna is at the forefront of it across many different industries absolutely Rihanna is killing it she so is is that all you've got for me that is all I've got Well, 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 this week, the Caroline Calloway saga went into overdrive with New York Magazine's The Cut publishing an essay titled I Was Caroline Calloway. Seven years after I met the infamous Instagram star, I'm ready to tell my side of the story. The story, written by Calloway's former ghostwriter and best friend Natalie Beach, promptly went viral, sparking a flurry of debate. Zara, before we get stuck into the ins and outs of the story and the details around it, what did you think of the actual essay published this week that was written by Natalie Beach? It wasn't particularly easy to read. I mean, I was pretty, dare I say, excited to see it published. This story had a bit of hype around it, not least because Caroline Calloway was the one hyping it up, Mm -hmm. but I'll talk about that in a second. But I remember sitting down to read it and I was reading it at home and then I needed to run to the coffee shop. So I was reading it in the coffee shop and then I got my coffees and I sat in my car and I kept reading it. And it wasn't because I found it super dramatic and super salacious. In fact, the details in there weren't hugely impactful, but I think the 
finish of it and the kind of the thoughts that I had in my head after was probably the most interesting. Not that I have interesting thoughts, but how much cognitive dissonance you had to play. Like there is no likable character in this story. I don't know who I'm meant to like. I don't know who I'm not meant to like. I don't even know why I'm so invested in this story. Yes. For those who have no bloody idea what we're talking about, I will catch you up to speed. Caroline Calloway in 2019 is a 27-year-old Instagram influencer who has about four years of controversy behind her. Sure does. So Calloway originally blew up in 2015 off the back of her very lyrical Instagram captions and personal dating stories. So she would tell her followers everything about who she was dating and these stories were all said to be taking place on college campus she went to cambridge she also went to nyu was it yeah it was nyu different universities that are supposed to have a very high social standing so she was dating very rich young white men predominantly and (laughs) writing about it she was one of the first instagram influencers to sign a six-figure book deal which she eventually uh which eventually capitulated she ran away from it it collapsed and she now still owes her publisher a whole sum of money years and years later she's been very open about her addiction to prescription drugs particularly adderall she mostly disappeared over the last few years until january rolled around when, and at this point, Caroline had about 800,000 Instagram followers, she started running a fire Festival style tour. I think she <laughs> called it Creativity Workshops, yeah. right? She sold tickets for $165 a pop and it turned out to be a total clusterfuck. She made a whole lot of promises that never eventuated. So she promised people that they would get mason jar gardens, flower crowns, beautiful lunches. She also failed to book venues before selling tickets, <laughs> which I would say is generally a bit of a no-go zone. A bit of a no-no, Michelle. That's like us booking a live show and be like, don't worry, guys, we'll find a, a venue down the track. <laughs> It's a little bit tricky. It's so stupid. The thing is, though, right, she made a few mistakes and she made many mistakes, actually, but she did always apologise. And her apologies have been complicated and they've been convoluted, but they're still apologies. And she has refunded basically everyone who complained about her events. In the months since, what Caroline Calloway did was actually deviate from what the average influencer or average public persona would do in an event like this. She got a whole lot of backlash and instead of retreating away and taking some time out from the public eye and kind of cowering, she lent into the controversy and courted it very regularly. She jumped in. She didn't just lean in. She jumped in. Now, an essay has been published in New York Magazine's women's website, The Cut, where Caroline Calloway's former best friend and ghostwriter, Natalie Beach, has written this blistering essay about their friendship and their working relationship, claiming Natalie was, in fact, the mastermind behind Calloway's writing and her stories. Zara. You're alive. What a mouthful, but well played. I thought that was a pretty good rap. The first thing I wanted to start on is when we were talking here about if you've never heard this story, some people are super invested in it and the other half of the world is like, who the fuck is Caroline Calloway? Yes. There was a great tweet by Emily Dreyfus this week who said, I'm halfway through the Caroline Calloway essay and it's mesmerizing and insane and so of this era, especially as my first introduction to Caroline Calloway, underscores how we live in these separate bubbles with micro-celebrities that mean so much to some and nothing to others. And I thought that that was a really beautiful way to put it. Like it is the era. It is so of the era that half the world is so invested in this and half the world doesn't give a fuck. Absolutely. I think the world is obsessed with Caroline Calloway, not at all because of the messes she finds herself in. Because I think even reading that list of stuff that you've just said, there's nothing remarkable in it. No. I would imagine that someone who's never heard of Caroline Calloway would listen to that synopsis and say, is that it? You know what it reminds me of? Remember that influencer who was trying to sell pancakes but actually had a whole bunch of folded up yeah. tortillas? 
tears and in it her Instagram photo. It didn't matter. Something that went viral like that was a major, massive media storm and yet went away because the influencer at hand disappeared. That's exactly what I was about to say. The world is obsessed with her because of the way she responds to them. And it's a tiny bit of a mind fuck, to be totally honest. Having followed Caroline since January when this whole thing, I actually had to unfollow her in this period because she was talking and posting about it so much. And I would say I have a pretty high tolerance for incessant publicity. <laughs> for hate following people. No, I, think I, I think I have a pretty high tolerance for like incessant posting on Instagram. Mm-hmm. But this actually blew my mind. She was really inconsistent in her response. Sometimes she was really apologetic. Sometimes she was really angry. Sometimes she was really sad. She just couldn't stop talking about it. And it was a total roller coaster to watch. It was literally like watching a tornado tear through a town or something. Like I can't think of another way of t- thinking about it. And there is elements of a personality here that I actually haven't seen in anyone else. Mm. And I think publicly at least. And I think for the world, that's a really remarkable thing to play out in public. We are so astounded that someone is willing to be so open and inconsistent about their thoughts about something that is also so public. She's impulsive, right? Totally and impulsive. And it's so disarming because we're so yeah. used to publicly shaming someone or holding them to account and then following the narrative that we all are comfortable with. Well, they retreat. They go away, they reflect on it, they come back, they feel remorseful. Caroline Calloway doesn't play by anyone's narrative but her own. What gets me about this story is that Caroline Calloway has a big ego. I feel very comfortable saying that. So I do think I. she would probably be comfortable saying that. I also feel comfortable saying she's probably a bit selfish and probably not the world's best friend, evidenced by this essay written by Natalie Beach. I don't think that makes her deserving of a viral think piece long-form essay into the machinations of her friendship and her personality. I definitely don't think she's deserving of Natalie Beach talking about her suicidal ideation in the way that Natalie Beach wrote about it. She hasn't committed a crime. As you said, when we go through her public controversies, Caroline Calloway hasn't done anything catastrophically bad. Yeah, she's got a big ego. Yeah, she's a bit selfish. But She hasn't done anything in my mind that justifies this level of public condemnation. Do you agree with that? Absolutely, I agree. I think we are vicious. Like, we are very, very vicious. And to be honest, I have to say, I think there's a bit of snobbery around this story. I think the publications that are coming with the most smug smirkness, I don't even know if that's a concept, but I'm going to throw it out there, are places like The Cut and The New York Times who are trying to report the story in a way that makes them feel like they're better than the story. Mm. I think, though, context is important. And I think the reason that people have come out so hard is because we feel like it's equal footing. And the reason that I say that is that as soon as Caroline Calloway received an email from Beach warning her that this article was coming, she started writing about the piece on her Instagram feed and on her stories and sharing screenshots of private conversations, building the story up. She built the hype for this story and she's no media rookie. She has managers around her. She knows that this is only going to feed the beast and that's what she kept saying she wanted to do. She wanted to drive clicks to this story. This is what's very confusing and like I keep coming back to the bit of a mind fuck about following Caroline Calloway in that she said explicitly, I want everyone to read this story. I want to give Natalie Beach my clicks. I think without her hype, the story would not have landed how it did. There was kind of like this frenzied delirium around how she was building the story up. 
The other thing to think about as well is two weeks ago, she wrote a story for Refinery29 titled What Taylor Swift's Lover Taught Me About Being a Scammer. So she's very much leveraging this branding of being a scammer. Since the story went live as well, she has posted 65 Instagram feed posts about it. And this is, we are recording maybe like three days after the story went live. She might not be well, and I think she has admitted that she's not particularly well in this time, but she wants to talk about it. And I think what we've done with that is assumed that if she is posting about it, we're allowed to slam her for wanting to talk about it. It's like she's inviting the conversation, therefore we can slam her. We're just forgetting that she is one person and we are millions. And what stuck out to me there is frenzied delirium. That's what it exactly sounds like, what you said, frenzied delirium. And do we trust that someone who is posting in that manner is well? I don't think we can and I don't think we should. because she always has. Yeah, but she's also been very open about being depressed and having addiction issues. I think a lot of this, a lot of the national blood sport that is hating Caroline Calloway is coming from writers in particular who are really at the crux of their annoyance upset about the bastardization of writing. Absolutely. And how this woman who doesn't have a writing degree, who doesn't have much experience in the industry, was offered $375,000 because she wrote poignant Instagram captions. I think if you look at how left-leaning, intellectual, progressive publications like The Cut and The New York Times and Vice and Vanity Fair are writing about this, it's because people don't like writing being bastardized and so much of her dialogue around the work that she does is art right but Mm. we're actually talking about instagram captions and for all i can kind of roll my eyes about that because i'm not going to sit on my high horse and pretend that i don't like it's pretty hard to conflate art and instagram captions i do think there is that snobbery element of the writers club is an exclusive one and either you're in or you're out Mm. i think though Natalie Beach will probably regret writing this story. Mm. I don't really understand what good can come from it if not from Natalie Beach getting some kind of writing career, but even still, like, I feel like that could have come by her filing good enough stories anyway. I mean, I think the piece itself was so weirdly, like, dystopian because I feel like you know there's no way it's ending well even though you know it's not ending well, Mm. which sounds weird, but I feel like the whole thing is set up for some massive capitulation of the relationship. And I think the class issue or the juxtaposition between, like, the rich, pretty, blonde, shiny friend and the less attractive, poor, do-gooder friend is key it's like this public breakdown and commodification of a friendship and I think what we identify in that story is probably being part of a toxic friendship and I think we are projecting potentially and maybe this is me projecting on our projections which is all just very meta (laughs) Meta. but I think we are projecting maybe some of those feelings we've ever had about a toxic friend onto Caroline Calloway I would not be surprised if we are going back to those times where we felt shit in a shit friendship and remembering how much bitterness we had for that person and throwing it on Caroline. Absolutely. I mean, you and I have skin in this game because we have a platform and we know how much that platform can do good and can do harm to particular people. And when you throw an audience and thousands upon thousands of people in one person's direction, you need to be really bloody careful with that. I will sound Pollyanna about this. I don't think there's anyone in my life who could burn me to the point where I would write a piece like this about them. I don't want to get upset. I know it sounds so weird that I'm upset in this story like this because it's Caroline Calloway and whatever, like it's a fucking influencer who was going to make a lot of money because she wrote poignant Instagram captions. What is the cost and the risk here? Yeah, so we've got Natalie Beach writing this essay that's gone viral and lots of people have enjoyed it and lots of people have read it and discussed it. It's all over Twitter, whatever. 
what is the risk here? We have a woman who has openly said that she is considered suiciding before, a woman who lost her father this week. Her father died two days after the article came out, a woman who has been open about having an addiction to prescription medication, a woman who has been open about her anxiety. It's not a sense of you being Pollyanna about it. I think it's the timing of the story. I think if we're talking about mental health and are you okay day, it's all well and good to have these public conversations about mental health, but deliberately ignore some of the things that can drive people to the edge. And I think there's some hypocrisy there. It's hard though. I think we can also enjoy the stupid frivolity of the commodification of a friendship breakdown. Like that's a bit fucked that they're using each other. But I do agree with you. I think we come back to this and I also feel like we have this conversation on the podcast all the time, which is the public reaction was so at odds with the crime. Like the public reaction was so at odds with the crime and that's what's most strange to me. Like why is the worst thing you can be right now a white female influencer with an ego? Like why is that the worst thing you can be? Yeah, and I don't know if there's anything that someone can do apart from maybe apart from being a criminal like a really severe criminal who has done great harm to many people I don't know what you could do to be deserving of this kind of treatment there was an article recently in Vanity Fair that read from Caroline Calloway to Jeffrey Epstein why are all these scandal makers obsessed with the Ivy League why are we comparing Caroline Calloway? Yes, probably a narcissist. Yes, an influencer who has a huge ego. Yes, a woman who was going to make hundreds of thousands of dollars off Instagram captions to a convicted sex offender, yeah, it's a so pedophile, it's so, so a man fucked. who's dead. We're willing to put Jeffrey Epstein in that because he's dead and he can't say anything. And we're willing to put Caroline Calloway's name next to him like they're at all comparable. I do think the media has a heap to answer for. Nakia Louie, though, tweeted something super, super interesting this week. And she said, is there anything more complicated and difficult to understand in the entire world than quantum physics and friendships between middle, upper middle class white girls who meet doing creative writing class together at an East Coast college? Mm. There is elements of that. Like we are so obsessed with a story that doesn't matter. And our obsession with it is probably going to drive someone to the edge. And I think it's really, really important that we're self-aware about that. That said, I have been very interested in the story. And I think it's really interesting and important to examine why we're so interested in about it. And I think it speaks to our obsession with influences that fall from grace. I think it speaks to um, the fact that we are so not wired to deal with someone who wants to speak about their own controversy as much as we want to speak about it for them. And I hate to say it speaks to how much we want to watch privileged women have catfights. Yeah. And I hate to use that term catfight. And I'm not saying don't be interested because, of course, we're going to be interested because the articles are out there and they're framed in such a salacious and interesting way. But I would put this to the writer's fueling this story what are you actually annoyed with her about again examine your annoyance what are you upset about here what is it about caroline calloway that you want to keep writing about and the big pressing question for us to all tackle is what makes a human being deserving of this kind of public shaming how shitty of a person do you have to be to be deserving of this because i don't think caroline calloway deserves this level of scrutiny i don't think anything that she's done so far is deserving of this kind of treatment particularly given she's a woman who's grieving her dad who died a couple of days ago this week a piece appeared in mike that was so bang on our mood michelle we thought our conversations had been bugged with the headline social media birthday posts how did instagram stories become the default way to celebrate our friends the writer hannah howard argued birthdays have become the best time of year to perform friendships on instagram writing performative friendship is reaching its peak mish in the era of the birthday instagram do you think performative friendship is reaching its peak yes and i'm so happy when i came across this post it was like as you said some Someone had been 
listening to our conversations. I'm so tired about performative friendship. I feel like I suck at it. And maybe that's why I hate it. I don't think I perform my friendships on Instagram at all. Like, you know how there's definitely a trend to put up uh, photos of your friend on their birthday on your Instagram story? I don't do that. And I've said to you before, is it bad that I don't do that? Like, am I a worse friend because it doesn't occur to me to put up photos of my friends on my Instagram story on their birthday? Like, I'll send them flowers or I'll get them a present or, of course, I'll send them a text message or write them a note or go see them and get brunch. I don't put photos of them up on my Instagram story. I'm not saying it's wrong to do that, but I have felt shitty in the past for being like, wait, is this like some... Some Rule qualification book. of yeah. what makes you a good friend now. And you don't do it either, right? I've done you did it for Sammy. I did for, this is what's really interesting. So I did it for Sammy, who's my best friend that lived in, who lives in London. And I, I think about that because I don't really perform any of my friendships on Instagram at all. In fact, I never really Instagram hanging out with my friends unless I'm out for drinks and I'm probably had too many and I'm just Instagramming anything anyway. But I did put it up for Sammy, who does live overseas, because I think maybe subconsciously I thought there was currency in a public declaration of care sometimes when you're not always in the same space. Well, when you're separated by well, so like, many hey, kilometers. it's like, hey, we're still here. Like, yeah. hey, we're still friends. Hey, you're still in my loop and I'm still in yours. And it's hard not to buy into that when everybody else is doing that. The, the best quote from this story was, in 2019, the birthday gift that keeps on giving is not cake or flowers or a sweetly worded Hallmark card. It's the gift of content. And it's so true. <laughs> it's like your birthday means nothing if not for the people that are Instagram storing your own birthday but it's so weird I I have found this very interesting in our conversations because I don't feel like my social media presence reflects my social reality at all and I don't think that's me trying to present some wildly different Instagram reality Mm. or like hey here's my highlight reel I just think the circumstances that are designed to be captured on Instagram or on your phone reflect only a certain type of friendship like I, I remember having a conversation when we worked together back in digital media. And I remember we were all sitting around with a couple of our girlfriends and we were all talking about who our best girlfriends were and we were telling each other names and we were throwing out names and we'd be like, oh yeah, I've heard of that one. Wow, I definitely haven't heard of that one. And I remember talking about two of my best friends, Emily and Sakshi. And the girls, you girls will like show us photos and I was scrolling through my own Instagram being like, where the fuck are they? <laughs> and I felt so self-conscious in that moment being like the closest friendships that I have aren't even documented on social media at all. Absolutely, I totally feel that as well. It's also like... It's gone to a stage now where there's almost a hierarchy of Instagram posting and social media posting for different friends as well. Like if someone's your good friend, you'll post about them on your Instagram story. If they're your best friend on their birthday, you'll post about them on your Instagram feed. It's like we've even divided it up based on how close you are as to what type of public declaration of love is appropriate. I do find it super odd, this inclination to share everything publicly, particularly Zara, and we spoke about this as well, screenshots of private conversations and private messages. I have, have I'm noticed, sorry, I have fuck all time for this. Yeah. I'm sorry have if that's noticed harsh. so many influencers, a, a particular pocket of influencers, taking screenshots of like messages between them and their best friends or them and their mum or them and some woman that they worked with on a shoot. And then posting that screenshot to their story in a very blatant attempt to show the world what great friends and people they are. It'll always be a message like, thank you so much. You were so lovely to me. And this influencer will put it up on their story and be like, so lovely to meet you and tag the person. It's like, 
Why Why did it even occur to you to put that on your Instagram story? Well, I think when I see things like this when it comes to performative friendship, I'm always like, what's the motivation here? Mm. Like are they posting it because they desperately want this person to feel loved? And if so, why is Instagram the platform for it? And this is coming from someone who's absolutely done it and bought into it. Or is the motivation, I want everybody to know we're still friends? Mm. I mean, I feel so awkward and uncomfortable and ill at ease on Instagram and with Instagram most of the time, like genuinely, which sounds a bit disingenuous because I post like gratuitous photos all the time. But I do struggle to understand like what my role on Instagram is. It's probably why you've locked me out of our <laughs> shameless podcast <laughs> Instagram account. But I, I often feel like, for example, if you posted something, right, something great happened or something bad happened, if I don't publicly comment on that, are people going to notice? Do you know what I mean? Are people going to notice? Do I look like a shit friend even if I'm talking to you about it for hours? in person, Mm. over the phone, over text, do I look like a terrible person? I have felt implicit pressure to be present on posts before because I don't know what the look is or if the person's going to be offended if I'm not, even though I'm having those conversations behind the scenes. And I do wonder if my friends feel like that with me. It's just so stupid though. It's so dumb. Because it means nothing. A private message and going out of your way on a separate platform to message someone personally just between the two of you should mean so much more than a fucking comment on a photo. And it does mean more. But we've got this warped sense of reality where I have literally had disagreements with people and run into tension with people because I haven't been public, public. enough about my affection for them, so which is I. just beyond bizarre. A little while ago, I think this is probably my biggest annoyance so far. This instance really fucking annoyed me. And it happened with someone else in a similar industry to us. They were going through a rough time, right? They'd said so in a feed post on their Instagram. Yeah. And you and I reached out to them one-on-one. I'm not sure if you remember this. We no, reached out to them. Because we crafted the message. Yeah, we crafted the message together to reach out to them and tell them we're thinking of them. And we actually shared some of our own examples and our own experiences and our own stories in an effort to reach out to this person who we've never met. We don't know them. What really baffled me about that is the person shared the screenshot of our message to her on her Instagram story without our permission, therefore sharing all of our thoughts and feelings that we were thought were going to be in a private space one-on-one with her thousands of followers. And that moment stood out to me so much because I thought, why are you sharing this? In what world did you read that message from you and I and go, okay, great, I'm going to show this to all my followers? Like why? That was just supposed to be between us. Well, and that horrified me and I know that sounds a little dare I say hyperbolic (laughs) but I am incredibly private like I'm really really private so to see that just be posted without my permission in a space I thought was going to be private really blew my mind a little bit and kind of dirtied the entire exchange it made it feel grubby right like we were kind of like hang on this was genuine and now it's not it makes it look like we've done it so that we can get clout on your Instagram story when we literally just wanted to be nice yeah exactly I also think in fairness I don't think this is new at all. I don't think we're hitting a new peak of performative friendship. I think it's just taking on a new life with Instagram. But I remember the same things happening on MySpace with top friends. Like I literally remember striking deals with people about the makeup of top friends just so it looked like you had a good spread of top friends. Mm. I also remember the early days of Facebook and how everybody would post on people's wall all the time. Hey, thanks for the ad. So lovely to meet you last night. As if anyone gives a fuck. Yeah, so true. So I don't think this is new. I think it just looks different and it's probably more on your face because we spend more time on these platforms. I think it's not new. I think it's magnified though, right? Yeah, totally. I think it's definitely happening more exponentially. What I want to know is why people do it. And I genuinely want to ask that because I'm still trying to figure it out. 
I think social media and Instagram and the optics of that platform have made us accustomed to valuing how things look over how they actually are. I think we'd actually prefer the world to think we have all these connected friends as opposed to actually fostering those friendships and putting in the effort behind closed doors. And that's very dystopian and very worrying (laughs) because we just want things to look shiny and nice without them actually being shiny and nice. I don't even know if that person that we reached out to ever really responded to us one-on-one or if she just shared it and responded to us and tens of thousands of other people at once the funniest thing to me is she put it on her instagram story before she'd replied to us which which also horrified me sorry to keep using that word <laughs> katie natopoulos wrote for buzzfeed in 2015 about this trend and spoke about the touching and vaguely megalomaniacal instagram trend of birthday selfies she wrote is the birthday selfie a sneaky way to post a cute photo of yourself under altruistic pretenses yes partly can it be a shrewd way of social climbing by bragging about friendships Yes, sometimes, but the well wishes for the most part seem to be genuine. And I think that's a pretty good way of putting it. I don't think anyone can deny that those well wishes are genuine. And I think we've kind of forgotten the crucial point here as to why we're talking about it. And why we're talking about it is because it can make you feel shit about your own friendships. It can make you feel like you're doing them wrong. And it can make you feel like you don't have legitimate and credible friendships if they don't look like what you see on Instagram. Totally. And did you say what you said because you actually meant it? Or did you say it because you wanted the world to see that you said it? I think it comes back to exactly what we keep saying. What were your motivations for posting that? What's your intention what do you want out of that post and to any of my friends listening if i don't post you on my instagram story i promise i still love you just as much just value my text message <laughs> that's the value isn't that the best thing ever like going to brunch with someone not fucking shit who gives a fuck about an instagram story yeah no one cares about yours by the way <sighs> so you're like this is why we work Zara, right. because i don't give a fuck if you share my instagram story <laughs> <laughs> hey i think that might be all we have time for i think it is thank you so much for listening guys sydney thank you for selling us out of your live show we will be there on november 22 thank you 800 seats yeah and thank you for crashing the damn website for like 15 minutes when they went live apologies for that we cannot wait for that show we are so excited to do brisbane and sydney until thursday's in conversation episode please come keep in touch with us on instagram we are at shameless podcast zara is at zara mcdonald don't expect to be on our instagram story i'm (laughs) at michelle andrews one Thanks so much, guys. We will be in your ears on Thursday. Bye. Goodbye. (laughs) Oh, hi. It's Annabelle Lee and Louis Hansen here. We are your hosts of Everybody Has a Secret. Woo! Woo! We are here essentially just to let you know that we drop episodes every week. Now, every damn Friday morning, we are in your ears. That is so exciting. What a time to be in your ear holes. So essentially, each episode, we unpack the real life secrets of our listeners. So this is for everyone who loves, you know, just a little bit of gossip in mm-hmm. their lives, which, let's be real, Annabelle, is all of us. It's absolutely all of us. Don't lie. You all love gossip. So if you want to listen to our show, please do head to your favourite podcast app and listen now. See you there. Bye.